Got a challenge for everyone. I dare you not to bop your heads like Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Party never ever turn down for what? 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 But now to get into the mood of where I'm drifting. Time to drift all the way back to 1897. The steamer Portland, headed for Seattle, out of St. Michael, Alaska, steamed down to Seattle this morning with a ton of gold aboard. That was a magical sentence that appeared actually in the July 17, 1897 issue of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. And when I get into where I'm going to go with this, the Yukon Gold Rush, I Give a huge, huge pat on the back and a huge thank you to Hadaway and to Lil John that you heard at the beginning of that. So, gotta get a little fly. Gotta get a little dope there. And I know a bunch of you are going, fly, you're using that term this, this, this far down the road? Yeah. Well, I know it's recording and the only thing I can come up with is fly right now. So... But this is something that went a while ago, I had gone on a cruise on earlier this year on the MS Koenigsdam uh, out of Vancouver up to Alaska. And we're going on another one um, coming up next year, uh, around the same time next year on the Oasis of the Oasis. Ovation. Well, they both start with O, <laughs> the Ovation of the Seas, uh, Royal Caribbean. Out of Seattle, out of my dear hometown of Seattle. Well, home, not. I wish it was my hometown. It certainly feels like it is. My dear, my dear town of Seattle, which I love, love dearly. But we're going out of there. And the one aspect of history, of American history, that has always intrigued me, and I always found really, really interesting, is the Yukon Gold Rush. And I've done a lot of research on it. The New York National Park Service and 
wanted to talk also about that and a little bit of the history that I was able to dig up from Wikipedia and the U.S. Park Service and the National Park Service and different stories out of Skagway and different things all around Alaska and what I was able to dig up out of Seattle too. Actually, went downtown to Seattle to dig up some stuff. But um, what I was able to dig up, my producers helped me dig up as well. It's, it's just very interesting, and I wanted to touch on Soapy Smith as well, some of the stories of some of the great people. Um, Skookum Jim was another person that I may, if I have enough time, I'm going to try to touch on that. But it's, a lot of it is very, very, very interesting. And that, that quote that you heard earlier at the beginning of this uh, was around 18, it was 18, July 17th, 1897, like you heard. And it triggered one of the last and one of the greatest gold rushes in the history of North America. Before noon on that day, every berth aboard the Portland had been sold for the return for the return trip return for the return trip north. And telegraph wires were humming with details of the sixty-eight miners who wrestled their suitcases, gunny sacks, pokes, and jars of gold down the gangplank. When it was actually weighed, the gold weighed more than two tons. But it didn't matter by then. The stampede to Alaska and the Yukon Territory of Canada was on. In August of 1896, when Skookum Jim Mason, Dawson Charlie, and George and Kate Carmack found gold in a tributary of the Klondike River in Canada's Yukon Territory, they had no idea they would set off one of the greatest gold rushes in history. Prospectors had been working on, in vast wildernesses along the Yukon River for nearly two decades, finding enough colors on the feeder streams to buy supplies and tools. But none had made a big strike until these four prospectors, the ones I just mentioned, stopped to rest beside a tiny stream called Rabbit Creek, which is now Bonanza Creek, which emptied into the Klondike River. When Skookum Jim Mason, a Tlingit Indian Native American, in proper terms Native American, a Tlingit Native American bent over to get a drink, he saw flecks of gold glistening on the bottom. Prospecting with him were his nephew Dawson Charlie and George Carmack, George Carmack and his wife Kate. Here comes a cough that just snuck up on me. Just as I said, you heard that cough just snuck up on me. <coughs> who, and his wife Kate, who was also Skookum Jim's sister. The prospectors gathered the gold dust and soon hurried back to, hurried back to 40 mile, to hurry back to 40 mile Yukon, Canada to file claims. Because Native Americans were not permitted to state claims at the time, George Carmack made a, made a discovery claim for all of them on August 16, 1896. The four, the four then returned to the claim and began to work it. Their find would become known as a discovery claim and collectively earning nearly $1 million. When other prospectors saw Carmack's gold, they threw their belongings into boats and headed upstream to make claims near the discovery. 
immediately the town of Dawson City was established at the confluence of the Yukon and Klondike Rivers in Canada. And the page just jumped as it tends to do. So I was reading from my notes and my pages and the page just jumped. So now I gotta go back and find where I was. Sorry, sorry everyone, bear with me for a second. By the winter of 1896, all the Gold River Bottom claims had been staked by prospectors in the area. They spent the remainder of the winter and spring digging out their riches from the renamed Bonanza Creek. Another another right as it jumped, just as I said that, the page just jumped. I love Google, don't you? Uh, another prospector made his way up to El Dorado Creek, which fed into the Bonanza and found more gold, which would prove even richer. Just before Christmas, word of the gold fields reached Circle City, Alaska, and despite the winter, many prospectors immediately left for the Klondike by dog sled, eager to reach their region before the best claims were taken. The outside world was roughly still was roughly still largely unaware of the news, and winter prevented river traffic. So it wasn't until June 1897 that the first boats carrying, the f- carrying freshly mined gold left the area. The Klondike Gold Rush was 11 months old when the Portland steamer arrived in Seattle. When that magic message about, about the ton of gold from the, from the Klondike went over the telegraph wires, the stampede began. In fact, the mayor of Seattle resigned to organize one of the many ill-fated Klondike mining expeditions. Farmers, bank clerks, teachers, dentists, conmen, Soapy, Soapy Smith, missionaries, and prostitutes all packed and headed north. All through the summer and into the winter of 1897 to 1898, Hundreds of hopeful gold seekers boarded ships in Seattle and other Pacific ports and headed northward with a vision of riches and adventure. The Stampeders then poured into the newly created Alaskan tent and shack towns of Skagway and Dye. Dye is spelled D-Y-E-A, but it's pronounced Dye. The jumping off points for the 600-mile trek to the gold fields. Unfortunately, these prospectors were unaware that most of the good Klondike claims had already been staked. Strangely, another ship with Klondike miners had landed two days ahead of, Port- ahead of the Portland's arrival in Seattle. This ship, the Excelsior, went to San Francisco, and a crowd watched as the miners disembarked, none carrying less than $5,000 and some with more than $100,000 in gold. Perhaps their arrival wasn't as well publicized, or the account of two arrivals within a period of days prompted a stampede to the Klondike. These many men and women faced their greatest hardships on the Chilkoot Trail out of Dye and the White Pass Trail out of Skagway. There is a train excursion if you go on a cruise, a lot of the ports, that the cruises that take you up to Alaska, stops in Skagway. 
and one of the excursions that I'm going to go on takes you on a, on a White Pass Yukon train ride out of Skagway and goes along the path that the Stampeders took. And you get to see the path that they took and where and how they traveled and the museum and the monuments to the Mounties, the, kit, the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that helped in the area. It's just, it's so cool. It's so, it's so awesome to learn, to see all this, to hear all this, and to learn all it. Is so, so cool. There were, there were murders and suicides, the disease and malnutrition, and deaths from hypothermia and avalanches. The Chilkoot Trail was the toughest because pack animals could not be used easily on the steep slopes leading to the pass. Until tramways were built late in 1897 and early 1898, the prospectors had to carry everything on their backs. The White Pass Trail was an animal killer. As anxious prospectors overloaded and beat their pack animals and forced them over the rocky terrain until the animals dropped. More than 3,000 animals died on, this, on the trail and to this day, many of their bones still lie at the bottom of what is now called Dead Horse Gulch. Not one in ten or a hundred knew what the journey meant, nor heeded the voice of warning," said Tappanadney in the Klondike Stampede of the Klondike Stampede. He wrote in the Klondike Stampede during the first year of the gold rush. An estimated twenty thousand to thirty thousand prospectors spent an average of three months packing their outfits up up the trails and over the passes to the lakes. The distance from, from Tidewater to the lakes was only about 35 miles, but each individual trudged hundreds of miles back and forth along the trails, moving their gear. Once they had hauled their full array of supplies to the lakes, they built or bought boats to float the remaining 560 or so miles downriver to Dawson City in the Klondike Mining District, district, where an almost limitless supply of gold nuggets was said to lie. By some, midsummer of 1898, there were 18,000 people at Dawson City, with more than 5,000 working the diggings. By that time, the best creeks had all been claimed, either by the t long-term miners in the region or by the first arrivals of the year before. The Bonanza, El Dorado, Hunker, and Dominion Creeks were all taken, with almost 10,000 claims recorded by July 1898. By August, many of the Stampeders had started, had started for home, most of them broke and disillusioned. The, the next year saw a still larger exodus of miners when gold was discovered in, at Nome in Alaska. For those that stayed, their wages fell, and newspapers began to turn against the Klondike Gold Rush. The Great Klondike Gold Rush ended as suddenly as it had begun. Towns such as Dawson City and Skagway sharply began to decline. 
Others, including Dai, disappeared altogether, leaving only memories of what many consider to be the last grand adventure of the 19th century. Over the, over the few short years of the Klondike Gold Rush, an estimated 100,000 prospectors made their way to the Klondike region between 1896 and 1899. Of the estimated 30,000 to 40,000 people who reached Dawson City, only around 15,000 to 20,000 became prospectors, and of these, no more than 4,000 struck gold and only a few hundred became rich. In the end, the four discoverers who by in the end, the four discoverers had mixed mixed fates. George Carmack left his wife Kate, who had found it difficult to adapt to their new lifestyle. George remarried and lived in relative in, in relative prosperity. Skookum Jim had a huge income from his mining royalties, but refused to settle and continued to prospect until his death in 1916. Dawson Charlie spent lavish and died in an alcohol-related accident. Today, the Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park commemorates the Klondike Gold Rush. Established in 1976, it encompasses it encompasses 13,191 acres and is the only national park area established solely to commemorate an American gold rush. The purpose of the park is to preserve the historic structures, trails, artifacts, landscapes, and stories associated with the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. The national park is comprised of four units, three in Skagway and the fourth in the fourth here in Seattle. Visitors can explore the Skagway Historical District, which includes a visitor center and several museums, the old town site of Dai, and the gateway to the Chilkoot Trail and the White Pass Trail, which you can see from, from the, the train trip that I mentioned. I'm going to mention, I wanted to go into mention to one of the big hucksters, hucksters, one of the big scammers of, of the day. And there's also a thought that he had some mob or gangster connections. Jefferson Randolph Smith II, also called Soapy Smith. He's very, very well known in the Skagway area. Everyone, Skagway, Dai, Dawson City, the Yukon Territory, up in that area in Alaska, everyone knows who Soapy Smith was. Soapy operated confidence schemes across the western U.S. and had a large hand in organizing criminal operations in both Colorado and the District of Alaska at the time. Soapy was born on November 2, 1860 in Coeta County, Georgia, to a wealthy family. His grandfather was a plantation owner in Georgia's legislature while his father was an attorney. However, the Smith family was met with financial ruin at the close of the American Civil War, and in 1876 they moved to Round Rock, Texas to start anew. It was in Round Rock where Soapy began his career as a confidence man. 
1877, Soapy's mother died and left, and he left home shortly thereafter, but not before witnessing the death of the outlaw Sam Bass in 1878. Soapy moved to Fort Worth, Texas, where he formed a close-knit, disciplined gang of shills and thieves to work for him. He quickly became a well-known crime boss and, eventually, the king of the frontier conmen. His gang of swindlers, known as the Soap Gang, included men such as Texas Jack Vermillion and Big Ed Burns. He moved from town to town, plying their trade on unwary victims. Their principal method was, sh <coughs> was short cons, in which swindles, swindles were quick and needed little, little setup and assistance. The short cons included the shell game, three-card Monty, and rigged, and rigged po poker games, which they called Big Mitts. Soapy's most well-known short con was a ploy, which the Denver newspapers dubbed the prize soap racket. Smith, Soapy would set a display case piled with bars of soap on a busy street corner. As he sold the bars of soap and spoke, of the, spoke to a growing crowd of onlookers, he would wrap money ranging from one to a hundred dollars around a few select bars of soap. He then wrapped plain paper around all the bars so that the money was hidden. He then made the appearance of mixing the money wrapped prize soap in with the regular soap and sold the soap to the crowd for one dollar per bar. Then a shill in the crowd would buy a bar tear it open and loudly proclaim that he had won some money, weaving it around for all to see. The performance led to the sale of even more bars or so. Midway through the sale, Soapy would announce that the $100 bill still remained in the pile. He would then auction off the remaining soap bars to the highest bidder. Through manipulation and sleight of hand, the only money won went to his shills. On one occasion, Soapy was arrested by policeman John Holland for running his prize soap racket. While writing in the police logbook, Holland had forgotten Soapy's first name and wrote Soapy instead. The nickname stuck, and he became what I've been calling him, Soapy Smith. There's a lot on his Denver and his associations in Colorado. But jumping to where, if you, if you look on YouTube, you see a lot of really excellent documentaries on the Klondike Gold Rush. I would heavily recommend everyone look them up. They're extremely interesting and a lot of fun to watch. It's really, really cool stuff. When the Klondike Gold Rush began in 1897, Soapy moved his operations to Dai and Skagway. His first attempt at occupying Skagway ended in failure when miners' committees encouraged him to leave the area after operating his three-card Monty and pea and shell games on the White Pass Trail for less than a month. He traveled to St. Louis and Washington, D.C. and did not return to Skagway until late January 1898. Soapy set up his third empire much the same way he had in Denver and in Creed. C-R-E-D-E. -E. 
he put the town's deputy U.S. Marshal on his payroll and began collecting allies for a takeover. Soapy opened a fake telegraph office in which the wires went only as far as the wall. Not only did the telegraph office obtain fees for sending messages, but also cash-laden victims soon found themselves losing even more money in poker games with newfound, quote, friends. Telegraph lines did not reach or leave Skagway until 1901. Smith opened a saloon named, named Jeff. Soapy's parlor in March 1898 as an office from which to run his operations. Although Skagway already had a municipal building, Soapy Saloon became known as the real City Hall. Soapy's men played a variety of roles, such as a newspaper reporter or clergyman, with the intention of befriending a new arrival and determining the best way to rid him of his money. The new arrival would be steered by his friends to dishonest shipping companies, hotels, or gambling dens until they were wiped out. If the men, if the man was likely to make trouble or could not be recruited into the game, Soapy would then appear in person and offer to pay his way back to civilization. When a vigilante committee, the Committee of 101, threatened to, to expel Soapy and his gang, he formed his own Law and Order Society, which claimed 317 members to force the vigilantes into submission. Most of the petty gamblers and conmen did indeed leave Skagway at this time, but so- and Soapy resorted to other means to appear respectable to the community. During the Spanish-American War in 1898, Soapy formed his own volunteer army with the approval of the United States Department of War, known as the Skag- Skagway, and I say that Skagway because it's spelled differently, S-K-A-G-U-A-Y, which is spelled differently than the city. The city is S-K-A-G-W-A-Y. And Skagway Military Company, with himself as captain. Soapy wrote to President William McKinley and gained official recognition for his company, which he used to strengthen his, his control of the town. On July 4th, 1898, Soapy rode as Marshal of the 4th Division of the Parade, leading his army on a gray horse, on his gray horse. On the, grand, on the grandstand, he sat beside the territorial governor and other officials. Going back to Denver, in 1879, Soapy arrived in Denver for the first, for first, for the first time. And by 1882, he had successfully built the first of his three empires. Con men usually moved from town to town to avoid the law, but as Soapy's power and gang grew, so did his influence at City Hall, which allowed him to remain in the city at the time, protected from prosecution. By 1887, he was reputedly involved with most of the criminal activities in the city. Newspapers in Denver reported that he controlled the city's criminals and underworld gambling, 
and he accused corrupt politicians and the police chief of accepting bribes. In 1888, Soapy opened the Tivoli Club, a combination, of, a combination saloon and gambling house on the east corner of Market and 17th Street. Allegedly, a sign above the entrance to the gambling games read, Caveat Emptor, Latin for Let the Buyer Beware. Soapy's younger brother, Bascombe Smith, joined the gang and, and operated a cigar store that was a front for dishonest poker games and other swindles, which op operated in one of the back rooms. Other operations included fraudulent lottery shops, a sure thing, stock exchange, fake watch and diamond auctions, and the sale of stocks in non-existent businesses. Due to receiving bribes, some of the, po the police officers patrolling the streets would not arrest Soapy or members of his gang, and other officers feared Soapy's quick and violent anger. On those occasions, when Soapy or one of his men were arrested, their friends, attorneys, or associates were always ready to obtain their quick release from jail. An electoral fraud an electoral fraud trial after the municipal elections of 1889 brought attention to the corrupt ties and payoffs among Soapy, the mayor and chief of police, a combination referred to in local newspapers as the firm of Londoner, Farley, and Smith. The mayor lost his job, but Soapy remained untouched. He opened an office in the prominent Cheever block, one block south of his Tivoli Club, from which he ran his operations. This is also front. This is also fronted as a business tycoon's office for high-end swindles. Soapy was not without enemies and rivals for his position as underworld boss. He faced several attempts on his life and shot several of his assailants. He became known increasingly for his gambling and his bad, bad temper. There is a lot about, about Soapy, and I wish... This, I looked up these articles that I was able to dig up and be able to find everywhere. There is a lot on Soapy. And there's also a lot on Skookum Jim as well. And there's a lot on the Legends and Jack London. There's a lot of legends on the Legends of the Yukon. And the stories of, of Dai and Dawson City and Skagway. There's all sorts of stories that you'll find when you look it up. There's all sorts of great details. Like I mentioned a few seconds ago, if you want to see excellent, excellent documentaries, simply just go to YouTube and look up the Yukon Gold Rush. The things you'll find there is really, really cool. And really, really awesome. Extremely informative. This is just—it's very entertaining to see, to be, to be in Skagway, to be in the area where this happened, and be part of it, be see it, and be part of it, and know that just off, just off the side of the train where you're sitting, that's going through this, going through the pass, that 
people trekked up and down this path. Like I, like you mentioned earlier, people couldn't do take all their stuff on their backs, just one one shoot over the pass there. They had to go back and forth several times. And when you see the White Pass and the Chilkoot Trail, you'll go, oh my God, how did all that happen? That's a lot of traveling. That's a lot of work. Oh yeah, it really is. So you can imagine what these people did and how awesome and how cool that was. There's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of info on Soapy Smith and Skookum Jim and all and everyone else. And I heavily, heavily recommend looking it up. But I want to thank you all so much for, for listening. Thank you all so much for listening and sticking around with me as long as you have. Thank you all so much. Stick around for a little more on the end here. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K, on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the best cruising podcast everywhere? Check out Fantastic Cruising on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. And on their Facebook community. Check out Fantastic Cruising, a great, great adventure you will love, love listening to and watching. Want to check out a really easygoing, fun-loving, extremely enjoyable channel on YouTube? Check out Meg's Fun Time. You really love what you're watching and you really love what you're seeing. It's incredibly entertaining and a lot of fun to watch, and you'll really, really love it. Please, please check out Meg's Fun Time. <laughs>